Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. How many is God? Although the ancient Shema recorded in Deuteronomy 6 teaches that God is one, Christian theologians have put forward a number of reasons arguing for a plurality within God. We will examine a number of these words, texts, and reasons in an effort to agree with Jesus, who wholeheartedly affirmed the Jewish Shema as his own greatest commandment. Here now is Theology Part 10, Challenging God's Oneness. First up, we have the plurality of God. State the doctrine simply, God is one. Three words. Texts that support this teaching, the Shema. And Daniel's going to read us the Shema. In he- Can you read that, Daniel, to us? Yeah. In Hebrew? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Okay, so let's just slow it down a little. With Hebrew, we read from the right to the left. Okay, so the first word there, it looks like a W letter on it. That's the word Shema. Then after that is the word Israel, Yisrael. And then it says Yahweh or Yehovah, or Daniel said Adonai. Eloheinu is our God, Yehovah, Echad. So the first line, I have the English translation for you. Hear, O Israel, <laughs> right? It's a little easier. The Lord or Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So that's the two lines that I have right there for you in Hebrew. I just wanted you to see it because there's nothing quite like seeing the real thing and realizing that what you have been seeing this whole time is just a translation of the real thing. It's still good, but it's, it's just a translation. And then uh, verse 6, it goes on. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you, they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Verse 7 here, this says that you're supposed to tell it to your kids. It says that you're supposed to talk about these words when you sit when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise. I mean, that's a lot of life right there. <laughs> if you, I mean, where, where, what else is there? There's very little left out. I mean, it's, it's, it's saying that this command, the Shema command, that hero is your Lord God, Lord is one. You shall love him with everything. This command is supposed to really take over your heart. It's supposed to take over your life. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to permeate what you do, what you say, anywhere you go. And then it says in verse 8, you bind it on your hand, you put it as frontless between your eyes, uh, which Jews, Jews uh, use as a uh, phylacrates in prayer. I don't know if you've ever seen those before. And then verse 9 is the mezuzah, uh, the doorpost. So that's where you put it right on the front of your house. One of your, one of your houses has that, right? Your house has that. And the blessed house. Yeah, the girls' yeah. house. Do you, uh, I have before. <laughs> yeah. You touch it and then you kiss. You your touch fingers. it and then you kiss your fingers. Your, your right? fingers. Yeah. All right. So I want to tell you the story of Akiva 
Akiva lived in um, the century after Christ, maybe a hundred years after Christ. He li- well, actually, he lived through the Great War, uh, the Bar Kokhba Revolt. Do you remember that one? 135? Yeah, the second big Jewish war. So he lived through that, and he became... He, was, he only started studying the Torah when he was 40 years old. And he became the greatest teacher of his generation. And it's, it, once the Romans were able to defeat the Jews during that revolution, they outlawed the teaching of the law and Jewish practice. And so Akiva kept teaching it anyhow. And he would go from place to place and he would teach publicly. And so naturally he was arrested by the Romans and tortured. They, uh, p- the particular method of torture was they would uh, cut his skin off his body. They would, fl- that was just the term flay. They were flaying his skin, but with an iron comb, which is absolutely the most painful, excruciating thing they could think of, I'm sure. And Akiva was muttering something to himself during it, and he laughed. Akiva laughed. He's being tortured essentially to death by the, these Roman soldiers, and he laughed. And so the commander, a guy named Turnus Rufus, says, have you no feeling of pain? You know, what's wrong with you? Are you a sorcerer? And Akiva replied, I am no sorcerer, but I rejoice at the opportunity now given to me to love God with all my life, seeing that I have hitherto been able to love Him only with all my means and with all my might. And with the word one, he expired. So Akiva set a precedent that especially in the time of persecution and martyrdom, that a a Torah-observant person would repeat to themselves, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, over and over again, that they would be saying these words so that as they died, they could be saying the Shema. And this is indeed what happened in history after that, from the persecution of the Romans to the forced conversions in Spain of the Jews called the Conversos, to the Spanish Inquisition and the, uh, uh, even the Nazi gas chambers. You could hear the murmur of the Jews as they know they were about to be slaughtered by the Germans, repeating the Shema over and over again. Um, this people repeats the words of the Shema in the manner of Akiva, and they die with it on their lips. And you, you see what he's doing, right? Because he's, he's like, I've, I've been able to do part of this. Verse, verse 5. Verse 5 is called the Via Hafta because that's the first word of it. It means, and you will love. Via Hafta. Uh, so he says, I've loved God with everything but all my life, all my soul, all my breath. Like, this is the only thing that, like, I feel like I've not been able to complete. So it's an interesting interpretation of it. But it's had a massive effect. And so you, you see there's, um, there's this huge afterlife of the legacy of... Akiva and the Shema and the Jews. Uh, I think I put a quote in there for you for Isaac Peretz. Did I do that? All right, Dale, can you read that, please? It's about the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language is the only glue which holds together our scattered bones. It also holds together the rings in the chain of time. It binds us to those who built, who built pyramids, to those who shed their blood on the ramparts of Jerusalem, and to those who, at the burning stakes, cried Shema Yisrael. Yeah, so, I mean, there have been many Jews that have been tortured and executed by Christians over the centuries. And at the burning stakes, they cried out, Shema Yisrael. Here's what I'm saying before we get to the next quote there. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the Shema is the creed of the Bible. It's the, it's the biblical creed. It's the heart. You know, you have all these different commandments. Tradition says there's 613. 
You have all these commandments, but at the core of it all, at the very heart of it, you have the Shema itself, that God is one and you love Him with everything. That's the core of it. You're not going to move a people that for, for thousands of years has had that as the core to say three in one. They're just not going to do it. And, and they've died repeatedly in the past when Christians have forced them to say three in one. They've died. They're like, all right, just kill me. What's three in one? That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. Three in one. All right, look at Rabbi Shraga. Seth Mandel, the father of the 13-year-old Kobe Mandel, who was bludgeoned to death in the cave by Arab terrorists, spoke at the massive pro-Israel rally in Washington, D.C. in April 2002. He told the following story. In the Sparrow pizza bombing, which... Have you ever been to a Sparrow pizza place? I've heard... I've never heard the name, but I've seen it. Yeah, they're like in every mall in New York. I don't know if you guys have them down here, but it's just like a standard pizza joint, like Pizza Hut. Just never heard of it. But better. Which killed 15 people in Jerusalem. Five members of the Dutch family were killed. One was a four-year-old boy named Avram Yitzhak. Abraham Isaac. Avraham Yitzhak. As he was lying on the ground, bleeding, burning, and dying, his father's, he said to his father, Abba, please help me saved me. His father reached over and held his hand. Together they said the works of the Shema. You have Akiva who is being tortured to death by the Romans who worship pagan gods and he's saying over and over, Hero is with Lord God, the Lord is one. Hero is with Lord God, the Lord is one as he's dying. You fast forward thousands of years until you get to the year 2000, somewhere around there. And now here's a little boy bleeding out in the street of Jerusalem at a pizza place. August 2001. August 2001. And he says to his father, Abba, save me. His father reaches down his hand. He holds his hand and he says, let's say the Shema together. He says the Shema and the kid dies. That's a legacy of centuries of, of saying this. In the Talmud, it said, they say, Jerusalem was only destroyed because its inhabitants desecrated the Shabbat. They refrain from reciting the morning and evening Shema. So uh, according to the Shabbat 119b in the Talmud, they say that you're supposed to say the Shema every morning and night. You say it when praising God. You say it when petitioning God. It's the first prayer taught to a Jewish child. And uh, once again from uh, Rabbi Shagra Simmons, in 1945, this is another interesting story, because this is back to last century after the war, World War II, Rabbi Eliezer Silver was sent to Europe to help reclaim Jewish children who had been hidden during the Holocaust with non-Jewish families. How was he able to discover the Jewish children? He would go to the gatherings of children and loudly proclaim, Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then he would look at the faces of the children for those with tears in their eyes, those children whose distant memory of being Jewish was their mothers putting them to bed each night and saying the Shema with them. So that's how you find, he was able to find Jewish children after they didn't even know if they were Jewish or not. They didn't know who their parents were after the war. It's, they had a faint memory of their mother saying these words to them every night before bed. The Shema is not a silent, cold belief. It's something you say out loud. It's something you say to your children. You, 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 you speak of it. When you sit, you speak of it when you walk, you speak of it when you lie down, you speak of it when you rise up. So it's on your heart. 
that's the core of all Jewish theology, really. It doesn't even matter if you're liberal or conservative or orthodox. You all, everybody agrees on this in Judaism. Now we look to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? They ask him, what's the, what's the greatest, most important commandment? He he's, he's replies unhesitatingly and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So for me, the Jewish tradition is interesting, but the fact that Jesus endorsed this one statement above all others as the greatest of all commandments and said it as well, to me that, that is the supporting text for the idea that God is one. So when we see scriptures that say, or seem to say that God is more than one, that God is a plural, we have uh, difficult texts. All right, so the first one up to bat, well, before we get to the first one, I want to ask Dion, did you want to add anything to that about the Shema, my little spiel there? Yeah. Because there's a lot more to say. Well, um, I, it just it's so meaningful to me uh, because of everything we just looked at and because of how, it, like, like Sean said, like it's, it's so important to Jesus and it unites us as non-people who are not physically Israel, but we're... It unites us with the people of Israel if, if we also place importance to it. So at, at, at our church back in Fawn Hill, we say it at the beginning of every Sunday service. So I would just encourage all of you who, who are part of churches and will be in leadership, just make it a part of your worship because it's 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 what we should be all about. So. Now, does it make up of your church a little more Jewish? Not at all. Not at all. So I, we're, I'm sort of introducing <coughs> it to them, but, but they've all embraced it because, you know, we believe God is one, so... Yeah. That's the question I was going to ask him. Why? I know it's Judaism, but why don't Christianity or Christians, the same creed, hold true to that same creed since Jesus endorsed that? It seemed like, as you mentioned, that would be one of the things that we say opening service, mm-hmm. or would be cracks. Yeah. More in my in my church, we have it painted uh, right when you walk in the front door. It's uh, stencil painted up there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or maybe it just says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I think it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you walk under it in order to come in. You know, so I, I think it would be great to incorporate in the service like you're saying. I used to have it on a CD where this guy sang it. Yeah. And I had one of these alarm clocks with a CD player in it. And uh, I, I would wake up to it every morning. Yeah, it's something that I think you should really uh, consider as far as what were you going to say? Oh, there's one, one more thing. The, the liturgical way that it's done in Judaism is you say Shema Yisrael, you sing Shema Yisrael, Adonai is our God, Adonai is one, and then you say, blessed be his name whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Mm. And it's just like, wow, God is one in the kingdom. It's Gee. a perfect, perfect uh, way to start. I hope, you, I hope you bring that up next week. Yeah, it's yeah. a good suggestion to, to incorporate that liturgically yeah. with the pastors. He's going to a pastors conference mm-hmm. uh, next week. Minister, we call it ministers conference, yes. right? Yeah. As far as your question, Christianity got off track on this issue, and it's a long, complicated story. It starts 300 years later, where, well, I mean, not, not the whole thing, but you know, a lot of these things end up changing 300 years later after Christ. Is that the part you mentioned in your manifesto? in your restitution manifesto getting back to authentic Christianity and living it yeah. today? Yeah, yeah. Dan Wall is supposed to talk to us 
about Genesis 1.26. Are you prepared to do that? Yeah. Alright. So Genesis 1, 1, or 1.26. Uh, let us make man in our own image. Uh, so the us is our problem because what is us referred to? Some people would take us, but us make man in our own image. They refer to the Trinity, uh, like the Spirit and uh, Jesus. But I don't really think that's how it rolls. So, solution is our possibility number one. Uh, possibility A is, uh, well, the Jews never interpreted it like that. Like, over the course of, you know, however many years from Adam to, uh, to Jesus, they never interpreted it as, uh, John was three and one. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, solution two, which I'm a big fan of, is, uh, is the use of the plural is for, for a amplification, uh, and this is like pretty much throughout uh, everything. If you were to say to like uh, king, like the plural of majesty, he's like he would say, uh, "Given at our palace, or it is our pleasure." And even in the Bible, uh, Ezra four eleven and four eighteen both use plural uh, to describe. Uh, I, I don't think, I'm not sure if there's, I think there's what, what verse is it? Kingdom. Uh, Ezra 4.11. Okay, I could just pull it up so we have uh, it there. And then, uh, and they, uh, so they sent this letter to King Art to Zurich, and the king, uh, the king replies back in verse 18, uh, using a plural uh, when you sent to us, uh, but it was really just sent to him. So he's using us to describe the kingdom, him as king. So, uh, and then also the name is, name of God isn't the only thing pluralized. In Genesis 4, it says, and the Lord said, what have you done? And the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, right? We read this yesterday. But it really says, uh, the voice of your brother's one is crying to me from the ground. So it's an emphasis. Uh, in Genesis 19.11, it says, And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house. But it really says blindness is. And then in Leviticus 19.24, uh, it says, And in the fourth year all that fruit shall be holy, and an offering of praise to the Lord. But it really says praise is. So in this specific incident, it, it's an amplification, like it's supposed to be like multiple phrases, you know? Okay. Third possibility is that <laughs> it can be angels, but uh, is that God used angels to create the earth, and God worked through angels to create everything. But over and over and over again, uh, throughout scripture, there's a, like, a singularity that God God created it, in, especially in the psalm, where it says, you know, God commanded uh, the heavens and, uh, and made the earth. Yeah, that's kind of it, Genesis 1, 6, 26. Okay. Thank you for that. I'm going to uh, back up a second and look at Elohim real quickly, because it, it kind of ties in. Did everybody understand what he gave as far as the options? You had, you made the point that Jews have not consider God plural as a result of this us here. You uh, made the point that there's the plural 
of majesty. And then was your next point the plural of fullness? Or is that the same <laughs> emphasis? Yeah. And then um, you have the idea that God was speaking to the angels when he said, let us make people. Okay. All right. So Elohim. So you guys got that, right? So Elohim is, uh, is the word that is translated God or gods, or usually lowercase g, gods. Um, and you can usually tell a Hebrew masculine plural word uh, by that im ending there, okay? And so there's no question. The word Elohim has a plural ending. And it's like an S in English. However, uh, this word Elohim can have a singular meaning or a plural meaning. And the singular form of it, how do we say that, Aloha, is very rare. It's only used in a, a few places in, in like more of the poetic kind of books. So you have Elohim used a lot. And if we look up, if I even just look up the word God, I could probably find it. Okay, so you see in um, Genesis 1-1, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The actual Hebrew says, in the beginning God's created the heavens and the earth. However, in Hebrew, verbs also have number. In English, we have this to some degree. I don't say a man are happy. No, I say a man is happy because there's only one, so I use is. If there's more than one, I say men or women are happy. So we have is for singular, are for plural. So we have that in English a little bit. Hebrew is much stricter. For Hebrew, it's always there. As a result, this verb right here for created, which I could show you in the Hebrew, is right here, bara. You can see in this little box here, it's call. It means to create, nif, create, and so on, cut down. And then it says, it says it's third person, masculine, singular. Okay, so this verb is singular. That's interesting because the noun is plural and then the verb is singular. It's like saying the men is happy. <laughs> so what's going on here? What's going on is we have a plural form that doesn't like to go singular. It, it likes to stay plural. Okay, and this is not the only word in Hebrew that does this. There are other words like this, like the word water, the word heaven, the word face, shemayim, mayim, and panim. These are all other Hebrew words that have that im ending, and they just don't like, they just don't go singular. They just have a plural ending. We have words in English that are like this that have, like sheep. Sheep is singular and sheep is plural. Sometimes people allege, oh, well, since the word Elohim is a plural form, then God must be plural. Since the verbs are singular, he's singular and plural at the same time. Well, that's, you know, you got to give people credit for the creativity of that kind of argument. But then you look at other gods, like the, the god Dagon here, and the word God used for Dagon is the same word as the word used for Yahweh. Same thing with Chemosh, same thing with Baal, same thing with any of the other gods. They use the same word Elohim. So now what are we saying? That all gods in the Bible have a, a hint of plurality to them? No. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. So it's, it's just a, a quirk of Hebrew grammar. And if you want to be consistent, if you want to actually say that Elohim is plural, then you should translate it plural. In the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. Uh-oh. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a little awkward. So uh, for that reason, most scholars... Um, or I would say probably all scholars have given up this argument. You hear it sometimes on the internet 
in like a random website or something. Elohim somehow proves that God's a plural. But even in the Shema, which we were looking at before, right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord, even this right here, the word God is Elohim. <laughs> and the whole point of this is to say he's one. Um, or if you look at another like one God text, Deuteronomy 4.35, it says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. You have a singular pronoun that goes back to the word God. So God's plural, but this is singular. In other words, it's, it's clearly identifying the whole thing as singular. So I would say that Elohim is, is not problematic. It's just like the way that word is used. Now, some scholars, you know, he, linguists and stuff, they speculate, well, why is it like that? And they say, well, it's, it's a, this plural of intensity or majesty where people are uh, so, so trying to respect God that they're, they're, he's, he, they use a plural form for him. Okay, That's a speculation. Nobody really knows. But, you know, uh, it, it may be. Now, as far as uh, Genesis 1.26, we've already talked about that one. Here's another one. Genesis 19... 24. Here's our, uh, so the first one was Genesis 1.26. Second one was Elohim, just the word Elohim. It's not a verse, it's a word. And then the third one is Genesis 19.24. Have you guys seen this one before? Is this when the strangers come and talk to Abraham? Yeah. It's in the same context as this, but uh, this is where it says, The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So some people have said, okay, this represents two Yahwehs. There's two Yahwehs in this verse. How would you reply to that, Daniel? What do you think? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is not that there's two Yahwehs. It's that the Lord is three in one. So they're not even getting their own. They're not arguing for the position with that argument. We're going to have a real problem with Deuteronomy 6.4 if Genesis 19.24 says there's more than one Yahweh. Deuteronomy 6.4, like I already said, is the heart of theology f from a biblical standpoint. And the whole point of Deuteronomy 6.4 is that Yahweh is one. <laughs> that is the point of it. Uh, so to say Yahweh is two is just like, uh, sorry, that doesn't work. Now, what other options could be going on here? Here's a little quote from Raymond Esso in his paper called Shaliach. An introduction to the law of agency. This is page uh, five. He says, Who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Two angels or God? He says, Genesis 19 begins with two angels arriving in Sodom who are recognized as men. You remember this? The two angels come to Sodom and they're like, Hey, look at these two guys. The angels tell a lot. The outcry to the Lord, to Yahweh, against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. God sent the angels to destroy it, but first they went to visit, and then they went to get Lot out. Lot tells his family, hurry and get out of this place because Yahweh is about to destroy the city. That's interesting, right? Because so the angel said, he has sent us to destroy the city, and then Lot tells his family, Yahweh is going to destroy the city. Then it goes on. Then it says, Yahweh rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain. The narrative ends with Abraham looking at the destruction and the statement of when God destroyed the cities of the plain. Again, who destroyed the cities, God or the angels? 
This narrative of God's judgment is an illustration of agency at work. God ultimately is the one who destroyed the cities in the plain. The angels are the means by which God destroyed the cities, for they are God's servants, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Another way of illustrating this concept is one who has committed murder with a firearm. The firearm is a means by which the murderer kills his victim. Or the electric chair is the means by which the death penalty was executed. In this case, the firearms or electric chair were the angels. So you see, you see the point there. So you have in one place God and then in another place the angels, right? So you have Yahweh on earth and you have Yahweh in heaven. Who's Yahweh on earth? It's these angels acting in God's place as his agents doing the job and they're doing it from Yahweh. They're not doing it on their own, they're doing it from Yahweh. So that's his explanation. Go ahead. Is that what the same thing is saying here in 26? Uh, I'm sorry, 24. Then the Lord mm -hmm. rained burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord right. out of the sky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what I'm saying is the Lord on the ground there are these angels. The Lord on the ground is angels that do They're representing the Lord. Okay. So they're, it says they're the Lord, but it, they're not really the Lord. They're angels acting on the Lord's behalf, so they get called the Lord. Just like okay. when okay. Uh, the officer knocks on the door, he doesn't say Officer Smith. He says police, open up. He is not the police. He is a police man. But he says police, open up. All right, so that's, that's one way to think of it. Another way to think of it is God's just referring to himself in the third person, which people in the Bible do that from time to time. This is funny. What? To refer to yourself in the third person. Yes. And can get away with it, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, God does it in the Bible. You see it where he will refer to himself as Yahweh. Instead of I, he'll say Yahweh. Like one more dinner from him. All right, maybe I'm automatically inserting punctuation. What What are you thinking there? I don't really see the problem. I mean, it's saying the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, uh, from the Lord out of heaven. Yeah, so I don't really understand how there how is there a Lord on earth? Where Where is that coming from? I'm missing it. I'm just missing it. I don't really understand. Well, you have two lords here, so. So. Do you think they're both referring to the same thing? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. That was option number two, so you're, you're all good. Uh, if it's not a problem, it's not a problem. But my, my point is this is a text that people bring up to argue that God is not one, but that there are actually uh, a plurality because Yahweh reigned from Yahweh. So there's two Yahwehs. That's what they say. And I'm, I'm not, like, making that up. People say this. So I want you to see it so that once you graduate from here, if somebody brings it up to you, it's not going to freak you out. You're going to be like, I think we talked about that. Then you look at your notes. Hopefully you took good notes. And we have two solutions to it. One is the principle of agency where you have angels being one of those Yahwehs and then God being the other. Or that it's just God in both places. It's just Yahweh in both places and it's just an unusual way of talking. Usually I wouldn't say, I gave a book to Josiah from me. <laughs> you know, it's a little redundant. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's look at the next one, which is echad. Okay, so this, this is the Hebrew word. It's the word for one. 
Echad. It's like clearing your throat. I'm not going to be good at that. No, not Echad. Echad. Hey, if my wife and I could be one using Echad, then God could be. Okay, so this is the word one, but sometimes people say, well, this word one is used for plural nouns, uh, plural, plural or groups, okay? So they use the example of one flesh, referring to Adam and Eve in uh, Genesis 2.24. They use it to refer, they, they point out the example of the grapes that the spies took back from the promised land. They say that it was one bunch of grapes. So you have oneness and you have plurality. And then they make the move and they say there is an inherent plurality in the word one. Because in Hebrew, there's another word. What is that other word? Yahid. Uh, and that means only one. One and only. And that's not the word that God used, or that's used for God. This is what Anthony Buzzard writes about that in his, uh, I believe this is his Doctrine of the Trinity book. Shoot, I, I got the page number, but I didn't get the, uh, <laughs> the book name. Uh, this is, uh, should I say that? Should I say this in a British accent? No, just kidding. Uh, it is untrue. It's untrue to say that the Hebrew word echad, one, in Deuteronomy 6.4 points to compound unity. That's the term they use. They like to use this term, compound unity. That's what they, they're saying. I don't believe that's true. That's what they're saying. A recent defense of the Trinity argues that when one modifies a collective noun like cluster or herd, a plurality is implied in echad. The argument is fallacious. The sense of plurality is derived from the collective noun, not from the word one. Echad in Hebrew is the numeral one. In other words, if you're going to count in Hebrew, you start with Echad, then you say two, three, four, you know, it's just a word for one. Now you can have one water bottle, okay, or you can have one stack of papers. All right, what's, where's the plurality coming in? It's not from the word one, it's from you know, the other noun. The word one still means one in each case. So there's nothing plural about the word one. <laughs> this is funny to like even say it. There's nothing plural about the word one. One means one. If there was something plural about one, then you would say there is one God in the Trinitarian sense, meaning that there's more than one Trinity. Oh, that's very good. In which case, you'd be stoned to death. Yeah, you don't want to get stoned. Okay, right. So one God, one just means one. We're on board with that. Now I want to show you some triplet texts. And these come up sometimes. So I'm just going to mention a couple of them. And then the really most significant and interesting one, which is Matthew 28, 19. Okay, so the, the first one... A Trinitarian scholar wrote a book on this. And he found over 80 of what he would call. Yeah, you know, uh, I was putzing around online trying to find some good ones. And uh, I was on this very like almost prehistoric website. Uh, it looked like it was from, it looked like it was from the 80s, to be honest. And I am pretty sure there was no internet yet in the 80s, so um, uh, just kidding. But uh, he had all these verses and I was like, oh man, you know, I'm like trying to be on your side right now because I'm trying to find difficult verses. And I'm like, none of these would even pass. These I felt like were the strongest three, ironically three of the triplet texts. <laughs> So the first one is 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have God, and you have the Holy Spirit all in one verse. Then in 1 Corinthians 12, 
4 through 6, you see in the top one, it says the same Spirit, and then in verse 5, the same Lord, and then in verse 6, the same God. If you really want to be definite about verse 5, saying that it's Jesus there, which typically in Paul, Lord is Jesus. Not always, but typically. So I think that's a fair assumption. So then you have Spirit, Lord, and God. Therefore, hey, the Trinity. But none of those really compares to Matthew 28, 19, where it says it has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do you guys think about these triplet verses? I believe in a tri... tri a, a, a lowercase tree, T, Trinity. You know, that there's divine things in that sense, you know. So you believe in all three. You believe in God, you believe in Jesus, you believe in the Spirit. Yeah, and I believe that they all have divine qualities about them, but that doesn't mean that they're all God. Well, it doesn't mean they're one substance. I mean, there would be, you could say they're one in purpose. Uh, Jesus said, I and the Father are one, right? Obviously, they're, they're doing the same thing. They're working together. The Spirit's working together, but that doesn't mean they're one thing. All right, so on to Matthew 28, 19. This document is called is Matthew 28, 19, Authentic or Forgery. It's a uh, research paper. I wrote it, I think. Into, um, pretty sure. It's been a little while, but uh, it's a research paper into the subject of whether or not Matthew 8, 28, 19 is actually part of the Bible, okay? So, let me just read the introduction and then the conclusion, okay? So we skip the middle and all like the making of the point. Actually, let's have Kyle read it because he's got such a good loud reading voice. Tucked away at the end of the Gospel of Matthew is the Great Commission. It reads, Therefore go, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, modalists and Unitarians question the validity of this verse because of its Trinitarian flavor. Typically, those who question its authenticity argue that we do not have manuscripts of Matthew 28, 19 before A.D. 325 when the Church ratified the Trinitarian Creed at Nicaea and that they were all corrupted at that time. Furthermore, they refer to Eusebius, the famous church historian, because he quoted an alternative version of Matthew 28:19 in his writings, i.e. go and make disciples of all the nations in my name. Although it may be convenient for us not to have to deal with this verse, we have to be careful not to allow our theology to determine what scripture says. In what follows, I want to lay out the reasons why every handwritten and printed Greek text contains the full version of Matthew 28:19, and why I think it is... It is sound as we have it in our Bibles today. Okay, so then we look at the manuscript evidence. And I'll just tell you what the manuscript evidence is. Every single manuscript on the planet that contains Matthew 28, 19 has it just like you read it in your Bible. In fact, since you guys know about textual criticism a little bit, I can pull up textual criticism here in Bible works. Well, a lot of Greek texts are incomplete, so they might just have a few verses here or there. Okay, so look, it's not there. There's, there's nothing to talk about. He's got 28.15 here, and he gives the word day here a C rating. I don't know what the other word, oh, or today. It's either, it's either day or today. And then uh, Matthew 28.20, the only question there is whether Aeonios should be there, and they give an A rating to it. So there is, there is no 
controversy whatsoever over verse 19. It just doesn't exist in the Greek, in the Greek manuscripts. There is, no, there is no controversy. As biblical Unitarians, we might not, we might not like that, but we are, we are to submit to the text, not change the Bible. Right? We're not going to take this verse out. Some, some people do that. They take a verse out. They say, I don't like that verse. That's not how we roll. That's why I gave you the Restorationist Manifesto, you know, that whole mindset. Now, it is true that Eusebius quotes a shorter version of this. And so people say, okay, this is evidence that there was a manuscript that's now lost that had that in it. And what I'm here to tell you is that, okay, that's, tr that's true that Eusebius shortens it, but he also has the full length as well in other quotations. Um, and so you can read this paper if you're interested in all the, the, uh, the details of it. But uh, let me just read the conclusion to you. So we can more easily account for the Eusebian tendency to quote the shorter version on these grounds rather than positing a conspiracy where the church fathers altered the text of Scripture. That quote above it by Everett Ferguson says, An examination of Eusebius' references where the baptismal command was omitted shows that it was superfluous to the context. In every case, the emphasis was on the universality of Christ's teaching in contrast to the previous religious and civil law. In consideration of Eusebius' method of citing scripture, omitting phrases he counted irrelevant, and blending phrases from other passages he counted pertinent, deprives the argument for a shorter text of any validity. In other words, what he's saying is that Eusebius would shorten quotations as he's writing just because he didn't think it was relevant to his main point. So instead of saying the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he would just say, in my name, okay? Because that, for him, was easier to write. That wasn't really the point. And then when he is trying to make a point about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then he would cite the whole thing. And we have this, this text in, like I said, all the Greek manuscripts, but also if you look there on page uh, 2, we have it in the Didache, which is very early, 1st or 2nd century. We have it in the Apology of Justin Martyr, which is the middle of the 2nd century. We have it on page 3 there in Irenaeus in the year 180. We have it in... One of Tertullian's books in 198, we have it in Hippolytus in uh, 200, 235 or whatever. And then we have it in um, one of Cyprian's works in the year 250. So then Eusebius, he quotes it in the, year, in the 300s both ways. But I don't think, because Eusebius uses a shorter quote, we should therefore then change our Bible. You know what I mean? It's just weird. You know, he's not, he's not the one writing the Bible. He's just, like, doing his own thing. So look into that more if you're interested in it. Anyhow, I'm saying it is in our Bibles. It's legit. I like Dale Tuggy's explanation of this. He says, just because you list three things off doesn't mean that they're all the same or they're all one. And it, yeah, he uses this deputizing analogy. I deputize you in the name of the mayor, the town, and the state constitution. Does that mean that the mayor, who's a person, the town, which is a collection of people, and the state constitution, which is a thing, are all one substance? No. It just means that they're all three sources of authority to make you a deputy. If I say I like Meb Kifleski, Shane Flanagan, and running, that doesn't make them the same. Meb Kifleski, of course, is the best marathoner uh, in America. And man, and Shalane is the best marathoner woman 
<laughs> so uh, if you have never heard of them before, uh, you, should, you should look them up. So Meb, Shalane, and running, if I say I like Meb, I like Shalane, and I like running, that's fine, right? That doesn't mean that running is a third person, an unnamed third person. It's, it, even though it's not a person, it's still along the same lines as the other two. This verse is in our Bibles and that it does, it does not prove the Trinity. Now, if the Trinity is true, this is going to support it. But if it's not true, then it's just saying that when you baptize people, you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. They don't all have one name, but they have one purpose, one authority. Okay, and so we have that expression, stop in the name of the law, right? And that means in the authority of the law. Now, obviously, when somebody becomes a Christian, God is really important, his son is really important, and his spirit is really important, and to baptize them into all three makes good sense. It doesn't matter if you're a Trinitarian, a Unitarian, an Arian, a Modalist, a Binitarian, or whatever other kind of Tarians there are. <laughs> you know, I think we should all be able to, uh, to, to, to handle it. Now, just in the last 10 minutes or so, I wanted to roll through a, a few other, we'll call it, other arguments that come up, okay? And these are not textual, they're logical, okay? So these are logical arguments people make in favor of a plural God. And so the first is based on popularity. It goes something like this. The Trinity must be true since so many Christians believe it. Uh, another version of that argument, it goes something like this. God would never let the whole church go wrong on such a big issue. My response to that is, if people were thinking like that 500 years ago, we'd all still be Catholics. Because the whole world was Catholic, and yet the whole world was still wrong, according to anyone that's Protestant. And so popularity is no guarantee for truth. So you can always do something like... You believe abortion is okay, even though most of your country believes it is. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you can ask your Christian interlocutor, that's your conversation partner, you can ask him or her, you can say, do you believe that Christianity is true? And of course they're going to say yes. You say, well, two-thirds of the earth thinks it's wrong. Two-thirds of the people on the planet right now think it's wrong. So Christianity is obviously wrong, right? You know what I mean? Popularity doesn't guarantee truth. Popularity is one thing and truth is another and sometimes they agree and sometimes they don't agree there there's no relationship really variation on this is i've been studying for filling the like, oh yeah years oh, i've been How reading this I bible know? for 40 years yeah. you're going to tell me that i'm wrong yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know in a humble way you got to be able to say yeah well you know what and after 50 years you could still be wrong about something else who knows all right, how about this? These are some like Jesus is God arguments. Jesus is God. This is less about the plurality. Jesus is God because he raised the dead. Jesus is God because he walked on water. Jesus is God because he cast out demons. Jesus is God because he forgave sins. Jesus never sinned. Therefore, he must be God. If Jesus were not God then our sins are not paid for. Okay, so this is, these are uh, kind of a classification of arguments here where 
they all have the same kind of flow to them, same kind of form. Humans cannot raise dead people. Jesus raised dead people, therefore Jesus is not a human. Okay, that's not exactly how they would argue for it, but only God can raise the dead. Jesus raised the dead, therefore Jesus is God. So how would you come back on this one? It's Peter who raised uh, someone from the dead too, right? Uh Uh-oh. Peter? Peter's not God. What are you talking about? Yeah, Yeah, the problem is that everything listed there is done by people. Okay, let's let's bring them up. Peter did it. Elijah did it. He raised the dead. Wait, Paul did it. Uh, What about walking on water? Anybody other than Jesus ever walk on water? Peter did it. Anyone else ever cast out demons in the Bible? The disciples. Yeah, disciples like Paul, for example. Jesus is God because he forgave sin. Oh, this one's more interesting. I think God probably reserves the right to forgive sin, but in, in, in a way he can allow people to have that authority. Like he gives them that authority. So he gave Jesus, Jesus, the disciples. Yeah, it's a designate, delegated authority. The place that people go to say Jesus forgave sins is Matthew 9.2, where it says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Of course, the scribes said this man is blaspheming. And then Jesus gives him a little argument here. But then at the end of the whole scenario, it says in verse 8, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Verse 8 helps us to understand that the interpretation is that God has given Jesus the authority to forgive sins. Now look, it's true. If I smack you, Kyle, then you're the victim of the smacking. If Dan comes over and says to me, Sean, I forgive you for hitting Kyle, that's weird. Right? Because you're, you're the victim. You know what I mean? Now, here's the thing, though. You, as the victim, can authorize him to d- refer to me the message that I'm forgiven. You can do that. So in this, that's agency again. So God is the victim when it comes to sin because a sin is always against God. It might be against another person, too, but it's always against God. And so he's always offended by sin. And he can authorize his agent, Jesus, to proclaim forgiveness to this paralyzed man. Well, check this out. The plot thickens with John 20, 23. Jesus says, if you, disciples, forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. That means you can forgive sins. (laughs) That means you're God. Oh, boy. No, that's, that's not what it means. You're not God. You are human just like me. So Jesus says to his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. All right, one last, or two last ones here. Jesus never sinned, therefore he must be God. I feel like that's a fairly weak argument. Adam was made perfect. Eve was made perfect. And they lived for however long, we're not told. And then they sinned. So there was a period during which Adam had never sinned. Does that mean that Adam was God? Or after the kingdom comes and we are no longer capable of sin, do we become God? No. No, we're still human. I like, to, I like to say it like this. Christ is the example of what God can do with a wholly submitted human. Most of us are only partially submitted to God. You know, we, we give up certain things, but then we hold on to other things. As you become a, a Christian, 
then you're supposed to be fully submitted, right, to God. But Jesus is fully submitted the whole time. He, he is always putting God's will above his will. And so he's the example of what God can do with a human being that is always putting God's will first. What you get is Jesus. All right. And then the last one, if Jesus were not God, then our sins would not be paid for. We have, uh, I've got four reasons why this fails. Uh, number one is, it's not biblical. It never says anywhere in the Bible that Jesus had to be God in order to pay for our sins. So we can exclude it on the grounds of that. Number two, God can't die. We have a verse that actually says that. 1 Timothy 1.17 says that God is immortal. So if Jesus is God, that makes the problem worse, not better, because God can't die. 1 Timothy 1.17. Number three, a sacrifice works, it's effective, or if you want to be fancy, it's efficacious, because God accepts it. That's what makes a sacrifice work. It's not that it has an equal value. Look at the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. Is that goat equal, or that bull? On the Day of Atonement, there's a bull that the high priest sacrifices for his sins. It's a sin offering. Is that bull equal to that high priest in value? No. So why do we think it has to be equal? Like, who says that? I'll tell you who says it. A Catholic monk from the year 1000 named St. Anselm of Canterbury. He's the one that said it. He, to me, great guy, love his, his other books. He's not the Bible. He's not authoritative. I mean, he's, he's figuring things out, and I think he got it wrong. And then uh, number four, according to their view, only the body of Jesus died. So that's less than a human sacrifice, if you really think about it. So our view is actually that a real human died. The whole person died. That's higher than the idea of a God-man where just the, just the, just the human part dies, but he, the God part lives on. It's like shucking a piece of corn. The good part is still alive. <laughs> the bad part has died. You know, it's no big deal. But if, if you have a real human death, then it's more valuable than just a partial, you know, losing your body for a couple of days and you get it back again, but you're still fine because, let's face it, you're God. So those are, those are some arguments people use. Well, that's it for this lecture on God's plurality and oneness. If you would like to read the article I mentioned from about Matthew 28, 19, you can do that. I put a link in the show notes for this episode at the bottom there, and you can get that at restitutio.org under articles. It's under the theology section there. Also, if you would like to catch up on previous episodes in this theology class, that's available online at restitutio.org or on your device. Before closing out, I wanted to read out just a couple of comments I had posted last Saturday about God's chesed, which is a really key theological word we find in the Bible, and this augments what I had said about it in our last episode here. So if you haven't yet checked that out, I put in there uh, three of the the sources that I have where I from scholars that helps me understand how this word works and what it means, including John Oswalt, John Goldengay, and D.A. Bayer, and R.P. Gordon. So take a look at that if you're interested. I've had a couple of people comment in. Dan Gallagher says, excellent, thanks. Paul T. Linehan says, it is chesed that heals a church. 
The practical application does, as 1 Corinthians 13 states, if chesed is missing in a church, it becomes unfruitful. It is only by the application of chesed that a church and its members grow. The entire church community must be involved. Anything else amounts to false love. Something to consider for church leaders, no? Well, thanks, guys, for writing in. I appreciate that. Certainly, uh, chesed or steadfast love, this sort of unbounded, committed, loyal love based on grace, not works, is not only what God gives us, but what we need to give each other. So I thank you for... I thank you for pointing that out, Paul, uh, certainly for leaders and uh, for all of us, really. Also, I've had a couple of comments in on my article from a number of years back called Rejecting the Kingdom, Part 2, Too Hedonistic, where I look at the whole subject of asceticism, uh, which is one of the main cultural currents in the second century in particular that affected Christian, that infiltrated and changed Christianity to inspire a number of people to reject the kingdom idea of living on a renewed world. And Richie Temple recently wrote in on that and said, this presentation of a very interesting topic is extremely well done from start to finish. The main points, documentary evidence, and conclusions are all thoroughly and professionally presented. It's a pleasure to read, and I would certainly agree with the main points. I would add that some of the philosophical background is what shapes the view of so many of the early church fathers with respect to so many Christian doctrines and practice. This includes their view of Christian nonviolence, pacifism, etc. The background quotation of Plato in this article in regard to war shows the same perspective that is later reflected in many of these church fathers. Though they often quoted scripture to support their position, they interpreted it through the lens of a Greek dichotomy of flesh versus soul, or spirit, and especially asceticism. In their view, since Christians had citizenship in heaven, they were too holy or spiritual to defile themselves by participation in the administration of worldly justice via the use of the sword, etc. In short, though the Christian writings of this period of time are certainly interesting and historically important, they are of almost no value at all in determining correct understanding of the New Testament documents themselves. On the whole, they've lost touch with the Old Testament Jewish background of the New Testament. Even more importantly, they've lost touch with the liberating truths of the gospel itself. Well, Richie, that is certainly a strong statement. I don't think I can go all the way there with you. I would say, though, that it is clear that uh, the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century uh, Christians did get off track in a number of different areas from what we see in the New Testament, from what we see uh, certainly uh, with Jesus. However, there are many areas in which they retained the New Testament teaching, and I, I would argue back that this subject of loving your enemies that Jesus taught, the early church continued to hold to. And it wasn't until the government started favoring Christianity through Constantine that the pressure was just too great for the church to resist anymore, and they caved on this issue and picked up the sword and fought and killed in the name of the Roman Empire, which, of course, before they would never do, and Jesus certainly never did either. He never picked up the sword against Rome, even though Rome had occupied his homeland. And by anyone's standards, that would be a just war. Uh, and yet Jesus said, uh, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword, and he, ref he refused to be a revolutionary, a violent revolutionary himself, and he taught his followers to love their enemies, to carry 
the soldier's goods for a second mile, and that his followers, when the war happens, that they should leave town. They should flee. He doesn't say fight. He says flee in that case. Now, you know, maybe you don't want to universalize that. Well, the early Christians did in the first century, the second century, the third century, and right up to a portion of the fourth century, we find uh, an incredible collection of statements of Christians who are very strongly against participation in war using violence. They're not against war per se. They believe in justice. They believe in just wars. They just don't believe that they are called to participate by picking up the sword. They believe that they are called to live holy lives, to pray on the side of justice, to even fast uh, on behalf of the military while they're waging wars against invaders and, and, the, and such like. But for them to, to join in was uh, certainly not practiced in those early years there, uh, with maybe one exception. So thanks for uh, bringing that up. I, I'm, I'm, I suspect that you may disagree with me, and that's, that's fine. We can work on this stuff together and come to a better understanding. But I did want to encourage you that if you would like to listen to more or read more on this subject, I have an article on restitutio.org that thoroughly addresses this whole subject of violence and nonviolence and so on and, and, and attempts to lay out a biblical theology on the position. And I would also turn your attention to Offscript episode 38, Killing in War, A Christian View of Violence, as well as Offscript 43, Can Christians Use Non-Lethal Violence, which was a Q&A episode uh, from last year. So, hey, take a look at that stuff. I'm not expecting that anyone will change their mind quickly on this. It's obviously a very emotional and personal subject, but uh, it's it's one that I am pretty confident about. Uh, and hey, if we disagree on this, we can still be friends. But thanks so much for writing in, Richie Temple, and uh, for making those excellent points that you made there. We'll catch you next time where we'll go deeper into this whole subject of Christology and thinking about who Jesus is and what the Bible says about him next time. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.